Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law. I'm your host, Loyal Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by Jay Willis. Jay is editor-in-chief at Balls and Strikes, a site for progressive commentary on courts and the legal system. He is a former staff writer at GQ Magazine and was a senior contributor at The Appeal. His writing has appeared in numerous outlets, including The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, and Slate. I've heard of them all. Welcome, Jay. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I see what you did there with the title, and I gotta say I like it. (laughs) Thank you. I'll take all the compliments at the end once I've earned them. So we were going to actually title this, when we were emailing about this, we were going to title this episode, What the Blank is Going on with the Supreme Court, or What the Blanking Blank is Going on with the Supreme Court. And you are one of the experts on this, and I'm so excited to talk to you about all things SCOTUS. So let's begin, if we could, with balls and strikes. So we talked about the fact, I said, this is a site for progressive commentary. Tell us about the name of the site for listeners who might not know where you got the inspiration. Sure. So Balls and Strikes borrows its name from, uh, you know, good friend of the show, Chief Justice John Roberts, Yes. uh, famously outlined sort of his vision of judicial modesty during his Senate confirmation hearings by comparing the role of the judge to that of a baseball umpire. I'm quoting here. He said, I will decide every case based on the record according to the rule of law, without fear or favor, to the best of my ability, and I will remember that it's my job to call balls and strikes and not to pitch or bat, end quote. So see what he did there, right? He's saying, it's not my job to uh, insert my preferences into the role of judging. I'm just here to call those balls and strikes, which is hilariously revealing because it's the kind of metaphor that omits key facts that every little leaguer knows, right? Like, Umpires use different strike zones. They're flexible in applying them. They make mistakes. They hold grudges. They play favorites. And they're basically using near unlimited discretion about when and how to exercise their power. So Balls and Strikes' name is definitely tongue-in-cheek, but it refers to the fact that we sort of reject the wrong and dangerous myth of an objective apolitical judiciary or the notion that a given outcome is just or desirable or correct just because someone wearing a robe is like, "Mm, this is what the law compels. So there's so many places to go here. Loyal listeners will know this is typically a sports-free zone, but I endorse the balls and strikes discussion and the Little League discussion because I was the only girl on my Little League team 100,000 years ago when I played on it. And getting back to what Chief Justice Roberts says here, It strikes me that this is part of the systemic problem with the court, that he's saying in his confirmation hearings that this is just what we do. We just find the right answer. It's there for us. And do you think that that speaks to a broader problem of what he's saying versus what he's doing? Well, sure. Like, especially Supreme Court justices, they are especially when confronted with constitutional issues. Their job is to interpret and apply a 200-plus-year-old document in the year of our Lord, 2021, almost 2022. And this document is just littered with inconsistencies and vagaries. And that was by design. And the notion that there's an objectively correct way to apply that document to a situation that the framers never would have envisioned is 
silly and farcical to anyone who isn't a lawyer, right? Like the Constitution says you get what? Due process. That's it. It is the job of the justices to say what that is. So, Jay, this is something I actually talk to my constitutional law students about a lot, which is there's a difference between what the Constitution says and statutes, which are a lot more specific, a lot more concrete. And part of the brilliance, and it's also maddening at times about the Constitution, is that it does, as you use the phrase, by design, use these broad terms that are open to interpretation because the people who drafted it, I think, knew that you can't play forward every situation that's going to come up in the next, not just two decades, but potentially two centuries. And so that's, I think, what offends me about Chief Justice John Roberts saying, I'm not exercising any discretion here. Any automaton could do what I do, because of course, this is why we fight so much about who's on the Supreme Court and why it matters so much, because they do exercise a lot of discretion. And I think that probably brings us to the second thing I wanted to ask you about, which is we read in the news so much, and I'm guilty of saying this over and over again, this is the most conservative court, or this is the most conservative court in 70 years, 80 years, almost a century. Could you help us put a little meat on the bones of that? I mean, how conservative is this court compared to any court that people alive have ever experienced? Yeah, I mean, as you say, this is the most conservative court since the Great Depression, you know, when is it legal to force children to live in the coal mines that they also work in was sort of like an open legal question. Right. Uh, right. But like, I also think it's important to recognize that the court has been conservative for 50 years since the end of the Warren Court in the late 1960s. It's always had a majority of Republican appointed justices since then. Now, those courts were more ideologically balanced than this one. You know, Sandra Day O'Connor was a Republican nominee, but she was also a supporter of reproductive rights. Anthony Kennedy was a Republican nominee, but supported reproductive rights and LGBTQ rights. And I think you saw journalists and also the public writ large get very used to this framework of four liberals, four conservatives, and one swing vote in the middle. And it's important to understand that this court is different. With a six-justice conservative supermajority, there is no swing vote anymore. There's only a median vote, and that median vote is very, very conservative. So my feeling is that the court is not only the most conservative, since as you talked about, there's a question of can children live and work in coal mines, but the sands have really shifted from beneath us in terms of what we even talk about as conservative and liberal and moderate. I mean, I remember back to when Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was nominated, that I think some of the press was, is she too moderate? Mm -hmm. And of course, when she passed away, she was the liberal leader of the court, known as one of the most liberal justices. Do you also feel like that midline has just shifted so dramatically that we can't just speak in broad terms about, oh, it's more conservative, but the conservative wing of the court is so much further to the right than I think people realize and is kind of swinging so much further to the right than the liberals ever did to the left. 
Yeah, I mean, with the occasional exception, I would say, of Justice Sonia Sotomayor, the liberals who are on the court these days are not progressive by any stretch of the imagination in the same way that the conservatives on the court are far-right reactionaries. And I think you've seen journalists, uh, people who cover the Supreme Court, have real trouble adjusting to this sort of new reality. You always see them straining to look for moderation, for a counterintuitive outcome, something that flouts the outcomes that you'd expect, again, with six conservative justices. So for example, there was a whole host of end of term recaps earlier this year talking about the court as a a 3-3-3 court. So that's three hard right conservatives in Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch, three liberals in Kagan, Sotomayor, and Breyer, and then in the imagination of these journalists, three sort of conservative institutionalists, Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, who are, again, in the imagination of the people who are writing this, they're conservative, but they're incrementalist. They care about how the court is perceived by the public. And then, of course, a couple weeks later, you had Brnovich v. DNC come down, a huge voting rights case that basically finished what the court started in Shelby County v. Holder and gutted what remains of the Voting Rights Act. Just a straight party line bloodbath. Journalists have gotten so used to being able to think of the court as a balanced institution and enjoy sort of their positions of privilege as being able to unpack the nuances of why the court is different than politics. Suddenly that's all out the window, but they're still trying to make the same framework work. So I noticed that you said when you described this, you know, imaginary 333, which hasn't born fruit as of yet. I agree with you that it sounded like you kind of put air quotes around the word institutionalist when you talked about uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, and Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And it strikes me that they do really care about how they're perceived up until a point. Right. So, and it seems to me it's like it's become so trite to say this now, but Chief Justice John Roberts is the, as an institutionalist, really, I think, means that he does not want to preside over the last Supreme Court that had any credibility at all. And so he wants to get to the same place as his conservative colleagues. He just doesn't want it to look nakedly partisan or. What's your view of how those, you know, three supposed moderates in the middle or swing votes in the middle, how does it look like they're shaping up in terms of thinking about the court as an institution and thinking about the court and its credibility? Yeah, I mean, Roberts is the quintessential example of this, right? As you say, he's a hard right conservative who wants conservative outcomes. He just doesn't want people characterizing him as basically a stooge for the Republican Party and the conservative legal movement. So you see him come down in some of these more recent cases about reproductive rights, siding more with the liberals. But it's really important to understand that Chief Justice Roberts doesn't suddenly support Roe and the right to abortion care that Roe protects after an entire legal career working to undermine that. He just thinks that 
the hard right conservatives on the court, the ones further to the right of him, are moving a little too fast and that it's sort of unseemly. But again, to talk about how the media is having trouble covering this, CNN's Joan Biskupic, I noticed the other day, recently ran an essay, legal analyst, and I'm quoting here, talking about Roberts's plan to gut yet save Roe. And I feel like it's just a tribute to the conservative legal movement's success at seizing power within the federal judiciary, that the idea of gutting yet saving a constitutional right is even a coherent concept, let alone an encouraging outcome that would be evidence of the court's moderation. So now I feel like I'm part of the problem that you've described in the sense that I know what she's saying, and maybe that's not what you're, I mean, I know you know what she's saying too, but what I took that to mean, and obviously disagree with me, but I would, what I took that to mean is that Chief Justice John Roberts doesn't want that sentence where they say we're overturning Roe, but he's completely fine with saying there's essentially no constitutional right to obtain an abortion. He just wants to keep that essentially in there because he doesn't want that big moment. So he would rather, because for a whole host of reasons dealing with, I think, starry decisis more than anything else, he wants to have another one of those kind of Casey moments where we're we're upholding the essential holding of Roe, uh, but in fact, you're all but gutting it. I mean, is that, I know that you obviously have a problem with how the media has covered a lot of the Supreme Court, but is my characterization fair that that's what she's trying to get at or point out to me what I'm not getting? I mean, I agree with you. The two points I would bring up in response to that is, I think it's really important to keep in mind that when we talk about gutting yet saving Roe. So that's a, what that's talking about essentially is a compromise. I think it's important to remember that Roe and Casey and all of these other decisions that, you know, this patchwork that upholds the right to abortion care, those are the compromises. Roe and Casey do not say that one can have an abortion whenever one wants. There are already limitations on that that states are free to enact. And to me, it's this exercise in moving the goalposts, right? Casey weakened Roe and a decision that comes down that further weakens the sort of Casey-Roe framework. I don't view that as a good outcome. I just view that as whittling the right away to, as you say, basically nothing. And then sort of the second related point is I think it's important for the press to talk about rights, not in the way that judges describe them, but in the way that real people experience them. And if the court's forthcoming holding in this Dobbs case in Mississippi functionally obviates the right to abortion, I don't think it should matter that the court doesn't literally write the words, we overturn Roe and Casey. If you have a right to, an ostensible right to abortion care, but you have no way to exercise that right, that right doesn't exist. And that's how I feel that journalists should be discussing it. Right. So what you want is more of the row now stands as a hollow promise at best, that it's there, it's it's on the books, but it's not going to do anything for you as a person in Mississippi, Texas, Georgia, Ohio, um, that just because we have that 
and it's not going to have a little flag that says overturned next to it, that we live in a country where we really don't have, where many women already, frankly, don't have true access to reproductive choice. Right. And my view is that if the difference between calling Roe a hollow promise and saying that Roe is overturned is just sort of like legalese that only matters to, you know, nerds like you and I, right? Like, I'm sorry, I don't mean to characterize you as a nerd as such. I hope you take that as a compliment in this context. I felt very seen, Jay, so (laughs) not at all. All right, now we've been kind of dancing towards, I think, the next set of topics that I wanted to talk to you about, which is we've talked about, we started with, you know, Chief Justice John Roberts' famous moment in his confirmation hearings, I just call balls and strikes, which I think that we both agree was meant to make us feel comfortable as a nation that he wasn't going to do what his job calls for, which is frankly exercising a, a lot of discretion. And then we talked a little bit about how conservative this court is and how the press covers the court a little bit. But I want to get to what we specifically think are really the structural problems with the court. And I know you've thought about this a lot and we don't have time for an exhaustive list, but maybe if there are kind of two or three big things where you look at and you say, yeah, these are the fundamental systemic problems with this court, if you could call those out for us. Yeah. So as you say, sort of the first one we've been over, in my view, this court has been captured by partisan ideologues who frame reactionary politics as the inevitable result of legal process. That's been the goal of the conservative legal movement for a long time. And this court with Amy Coney Barrett is the realization of that. But people do seem to understand this, right? Polling shows that the Supreme Court's approval rating is at an all-time low. More than six in 10 Americans now say that the court's decisions are motivated by politics more than they are law. But I think the real problem that the court faces as an institution is that people understand what the court is and how the court is working. But for the most part, legal elites don't. The legal establishment continues to treat and talk about the court as just sort of this collection of Solomonic arbiters. Both sides journalism, right? It's a hallmark of DC reporting, but it's especially pervasive in the legal space because of the legal profession's undying belief that being a lawyer makes you special and different. So you have this genuinely dangerous institution that is at a more extreme point in its history than, as you said earlier, almost anyone alive today has experienced. You have a population that by and large understands this, but an elite class of politicians, academics, commentators, and journalists that doesn't. So maybe because I read Balls and Strikes, and maybe because I read other outlets and I kind of try and carefully pick and choose where I'm getting my news, I feel like a lot of legal journalists are saying the emperor has no robe. And maybe I'm just reading different things, but just to, I hate this phrase, but push back a little bit. uh, I do feel like people are sounding the alarm that it's not just policy disputes that some people have with the outcome of 
the Supreme Court decisions, it's that they are making decisions in ways that are often anti-democratic and kind of insulate their decisions in a whole host of different ways. Are you seeing that mainstream media really is just covering this like any moderate court? I mean, it's it's on a spectrum, right? Like certainly there are more journalists and commentators, especially sort of on the more opinion side, who are doing a better job of talking frankly and openly about what this court is and how this court works. But I think it's important to remember that not everyone is just a glutton for punishment like you and I and yes. reads almost everything that's written about the court. For a lot of people, their only exposure to what the court does is reading the end of the term recap. What did the court do this term? Give me the Cliff's notes. Give me the bullet points. And so when I see these term recaps that are almost functionally indistinguishable, right, from a term recap that might have been written five years ago or 10 years ago, just using sort of the same tone, the same vocabulary, that's what alarms me about the failure of the media to sort of accurately convey how different and how unique and alarming this particular moment in the court's history is. That's helpful because one, you've now called me both a nerd and a glutton for punishment. We met, you know, 14 minutes ago, but that's totally fine, Jay. And then uh, you point out something really important, right? Which is that I live in a bit of an echo chamber and I do read everything I can read about the Supreme Court. And that for a lot of people, the information they get about the court is what happened this term or little bits throughout the term, little highlights, but that it might not feel appreciably different. And I wanted to follow up with something you said about polling, because I always feel like this concept of how popular the Supreme Court is and or how popular its decisions are, which I think kind of go hand in hand, can cut both ways in some senses, because I think you and I would both agree there were a whole host of things in our country that were popular, but should not have been legal and were not wise policy. So Jay, you and I both think about the fact that in some ways the judiciary is the, the last stop on the train to tyranny of the majority, right? That you don't want the judiciary just blessing whatever the people want or whatever our representatives pass. So I always look at, you know, when somebody says, oh, this decision is really unpopular. So many people think X, but the Supreme Court thinks Y. And I don't know that we should put that much stock into that. What's your view? I think what I'd say in response to that is a lot of times when the Supreme Court stands up for the rights of a traditionally marginalized group, it's less sort of a brave, heroic stand then it largely tracks public opinion, right? I'm thinking about the Bostock case mm -hmm. that extended the benefits of federal anti-discrimination law in employment to LGBTQ Americans. People support anti-discrimination law in employment. There's a general sense that you shouldn't get fired from your job just because your employer doesn't like something immutable about who you are. The fact that the court was willing to extend Title VII in this way, I don't view that as some grand victory for redeeming civil rights through civil litigation. I view that as the court moving in the direction where the American public 
already had. And then the mm. other thing I think about is that these decisions were about expanding rights. And the distinction I see today in what the conservatives are on the verge of doing is contracting civil rights that people have long enjoyed, that people depend on, and that people deserve. We're talking about taking away the right to bodily autonomy in this Dobbs case, right? We're already seeing sort of bubble up in the conservative legal movement challenges to Obergefell to the right to same-sex marriage, challenges to something like Lawrence v. Texas protecting the right to private sexual intimacy. I think the rollback of these rights has to be understood as fundamentally different than the court's history of expanding them. This is a point I heard made by the Solicitor General in the Dobbs oral arguments, I think, which is she said, look, Supreme Court, you've overturned yourself before, but never to constrict civil rights, never to constrict individual rights. And this would just be fundamentally different. And I think that is somewhat consistent with with your point here. And we've talked a lot about problems. I want to talk a little bit about solutions. There's one that I hear a lot about in the news, and that's quote unquote, packing the court, adding the number of seats on the Supreme Court. I think you and I disagree on this, but we probably want to get to the same place. We just don't agree on you want to take the freeway. I want to take surface streets. Can you talk to us about why you think expanding the number of seats on the court is a good idea? As you sort of allude to, there are a lot of different changes that we could make to the Supreme Court. Like, turns out, not a great institution, <laughs> could use some tinkering, let's put it that way. But expanding the court is the only one of the proposals that addresses the immediate current crisis of the court, which is, again, six conservatives who espouse a worldview and support a political party and an ideology that is wildly out of step with the American public. Instituting something like term limits Great. Yeah. Life tenure has not turned out so well. <laughs> Tying the interpretation of the law to the fate of like a bunch of elite octogenarians who might die at any moment, not a great way of developing the law. But instituting term limits for the justices going forward, it doesn't do anything to reduce the power that Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett have tomorrow. You know, they'll do their job the exact same way. If we were starting from scratch, there are a lot of things that I think we could do differently about the court. But we're not. We have the court that we have now, and expanding the number of seats is the only way to meaningfully start instituting some of those longer-term good government reforms. So here's my anxiety about expanding the court, which is, okay, in the very short term for progressives, for people who are left of center, I think it could be potentially gratifying, right? So instead of nine, we kind of erode the power of the conservative wing by saying now we have 11, 13, 15. But if we don't do that the quote unquote right way, then there will be a very conservative president at some point in time, and he or she could then have six vacancies, seven vacancies. You still have the problem of one president just by luck being able to exercise so much power over our nation because there were Supreme Court vacancies. And 
so I'm not sure that the short-term gain is worth the long-term Russian roulette, but is your feeling that we just are at a moment where we can't even look long-term? We have to fix what's happening right now. Yeah, I think the metaphor I've used before is I think supporting term limits in the future without supporting court expansion right now is like talking about the fancy new sprinkler system that you want to install in your house while you watch your house burn to the ground. This is a problem that will immediately be addressed only by adding seats to the court. And I sort of take the point that, and you know, it's a very common objection and I'm sympathetic to it, the idea that if Democrats expand the court, Republicans will expand the court if and when they have a unified Republican government. And we'll just go back and forth, and eventually we're at, you know, 891 justices who would have trouble fitting into, like, a high school auditorium. Right. And, I mean, my view on that is kind of, like, fine, good. Maybe not good, right? But in my view, the court is already an irredeemably undemocratic institution. A majority of its members were selected by presidents who first took office while losing the popular vote. The senators who confirm Trump's appointees represent millions fewer people than the senators who oppose them. People understand now that the law is really just a tool for distributing power. A larger court with a composition, a size that changes, won't delegitimize the court any more than it already is. And frankly, it will reflect the reality on the ground a little bit better. The other thing I try and keep in mind here is that the small size of America's court wildly out of step compared with most other countries. And part of the reason that every fight over every vacancy matters so much, right? Both sides absolutely go to the mattresses every time is it doesn't take much to change the result, right? One ninth of the highest level of one third of the government is up for grabs every time there's a Supreme Court vacancy. So if we have a court of, I'm just picking odd numbers here, 19 members or 27 members or so on, that might actually be depoliticized to a certain extent for the simple fact that replacing one or two justices who die at the wrong time wouldn't necessarily result in the overhaul of law in the year that follows. You're point about how things hang in the balance. I mean, I remember when we recorded an episode the evening that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away and you start ticking off all of the ways that people's lives in very specific and concrete ways will change as a result of the fact that she passed away four weeks earlier than the next administration maybe would have had a little bit more power, even as a president-elect. And that does seem to be that so many rights should not hinge on so few. So again, we're talking with Jay Willis, editor of Balls and Strikes. We're talking about the Supreme Court, and we've talked through a number of the problems with the court, and I want to touch on a couple more solutions. We've talked about expanding the court. You've touched on term limits, I think, in a favorable way. And would you be in favor of what I personally view as the most kind of elegant long-term solution, which is 
rotating terms of maybe what, 12, 15, 18 years, every president gets at least one, probably two appointments. And we don't have this insanity where, as we talked about, the rights of so many hinge on the health and wellness of so few. Yeah, I think that seems like a, I mean, I confess I haven't like delved deep into the various proposals for term limits with different stretches of years and intervals and things like that. But generally, the sort of framing structure you describe is a way to make this a lot more regular and to at least have appointments track presidential elections. As you've referenced, the presidential elections are also not a perfect barometer for democratic outcomes, right? As we've seen more than once over the last two decades or so. Jay, let's switch gears for a second and talk about the Presidential Commission on Supreme Court Reform. This is something that then-candidate Biden was asked about, in part because Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, Justice Amy Coney Barrett was nominated and then confirmed just days before the election. And when candidate Biden was asked about this, he basically said, oh, I'm going to put some of the smartest people in the room together to think about ways to reform the Supreme Court. And the commission just came out with its report. And by design, it doesn't come out strongly on either side. By design, as I read it, it basically gives President Biden cover to say, we looked at it, but it does a lot of on the one hand, on the other hand. And I'm wondering if you could tell us just what was your view when you read the commission, which feels to me like the commission's report, which reads to me like one of the best book reports from the top kids in the class, but doesn't acknowledge, I think, the urgency of the situation. Yeah, I think the cake was kind of baked on that commission when they announced its membership, and it included exactly zero advocates for court expansion. I think you sort of saw the direction in which it was going. The commission put together basically a primo law review article that was very careful not to take anything that might possibly be construed as an actual policy position. And this was basically a group of elite lawyers who have spent their careers in the court's orbit, and they kind of worked backwards from the conclusion that the institution is good and righteous and worth preserving in its current form. And I thought the tone of the report and the various materials it released revealed a lot about who they imagined the audience to be, right? There's a lot of sort of hand-wringing and bemoaning the notion that people perceive the court as political. And what it kept glossing over is the fact that people see the court as political because the court is acting politically. It just doesn't strike me as likely that they would bemoan the judiciary's politicization if they were writing for women in Texas who no longer have safe access to abortion care. But they're writing for an audience of legal elites who, again, either like the court or at the very least have some sort of professional fealty to its existence and to its legitimacy. So we talked about all these problems. We talked about some solutions. We talked about problems to the solutions because we're both lawyers and that's part of what we do here. Do you think we're going to see 
any real reform. I mean, this kind of bounces off what we were just talking about, which is this commission report that um, I think was not designed to push for real reform. Do you think maybe when the Dobbs decision comes out and Roe is gutted or all but gutted, is there any moment where we would have enough political will to say, yes, we are reforming this court? I think so eventually, just because sort of as you allude to, the status quo just is not tenable. What the conservative court has already done, what it's sort of teeing up is just the beginning of what the conservative legal movement wants this court to accomplish. What I really fear is the price that we'll have to pay in order to get there. A reversal of Roe, for example, um, and these other rights, like that right to same-sex marriage, uh, to sexual privacy. I think it's important to remember that in history, not a lot of groundbreaking legislation has come from blue ribbon commissions set up by a president who opposes the proposed reforms that the commission is supposed to study, right? Like President Biden said before that, that he doesn't support court expansion. And I don't think anyone should have expected that commission to sort of come up with a work product that says anything different. They did their book report. All of them get to put Supreme Court commission member on their CVs and the law firm bios. And I think now the task is about sort of moving away from that and getting back to building grassroots support for court reform, because that's ultimately where it's going to come from, right? It's not going to be from within the legal academy. It's going to be when people who are not lawyers understand the extent to which the court's actions threatens their rights, their safety, their livelihood, and decide that it's time to do something about it. I noted one quote from Walter Dellinger, one of the members of the commission, who said, we hope the report's explication of the issues might be useful a century from now. And it's just like a perfect encapsulation of the problem with this commission, right? It's like, we don't need change reform a century from now. This is a problem right now. And it gives me at least some sense of optimism that the American public understands that in a way that the three dozen lawyers on the commission apparently do not. I wrote a quick piece on the commission and I zeroed in on that quote because it was so astonishing and it really does, I think, encapsulate what my concern was with the commission. So let's leave all this to the side for a moment and end our episode with some questions that I hope will be fun. We've learned a lot from you. I'd like to learn a little bit more about you. Loyal listeners of the podcast will know I sometimes end with three questions for our guest, which um, I hope will be fun. And the first one is, uh, which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? I'm not billing by the hour. (laughs) So I went to Cal for college and I'm also a Seattle resident and I grew up here as well. And there has not been anything that Marshawn Lynch has done over the past 10 years on the field, off the field that suggests that he's anything other than just like an utter delight to hang out with. My answer is Marshawn Lynch. Uh, Marshawn, I assume is a longtime listener to this podcast. And if he hears it, my DMs are open. 
nicknamed Beast Mode, which I think will shock the hell out of anybody who typically listens to this podcast to know that I actually knew that. And yes, he is a loyal listener and um, I text with him often. Next question. You are going to be stranded on a desert island. It's a food-related question. You can bring one meal. What is that meal? Fried chicken sandwich from Bake Sale Betty's in Oakland, California. I'll accept it. Last question, Jay. One superpower. You're invisible. You can fly. Everybody who talks to you, you know whether or not they're telling the truth. One superpower for one hour. What is it? Oh, I only get an hour? Only an hour. I'm a lawyer. I don't like giving people too much happiness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I was ready to ponder the the strengths and weaknesses of superpowers, but the temporal restriction, good stuff. Um, I think if I've got an hour, I fly because I can check off a lot of boxes on the life list, right? I assume that I can fly as fast as I want. Yes. And so I'm just doing a little globe hopping for an hour. I wouldn't say I'm like a a picky traveler, right? If I can pop over to Egypt in 30 seconds, look at the pyramids, man, look at those. There they are. All right, saw it. Next stop. I think that one hour of flying sort of entails with it a degree of efficiency that I just don't think I can maximize with an hour of some of these other superpowers. So I'll go with that. Killing three birds with one stone, Jay Willis, editor of Balls and Strikes. You can find Jay on Twitter at Jay Willis. That's W-I-L-L-I-S. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Hey, thank you again so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and sometimes TikTok at Levinson Jessica. We want to thank the listeners for tuning in, continuing to rate and review. We hope you enjoyed this conversation and we'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.